I've never seen a canister of kombucha. It says it's like a growler, this. but yeah, yeah. Well, I love kombucha, so I, I know I that. heard that. Thank so <laughs> this is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by an iconic broadcaster in this city, a graduate of BCIT's broadcast radio program. She's been delivering the news to you for over 20 years. She's the co-founder, producer, and host of the travel program Get Lost, which explores international destinations recently hit with war, natural disaster, or political strife, and why it's safe and beneficial to travel to those places. Of course, you know her as the former co-anchor of Global BC Morning News, where she sacrificed her sleep to give you the goods at 5.30 a.m., and since 2015, she is the co-anchor of Global BC News Hour. She is the Lower Mainland's own Sophie Louis. Sophie! <laughs> Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. What a nice introduction. I'm so excited to see you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to see you too. I know that um, uh, when when you first reached out to me on email or DM or whatever it was, I was like, I've been waiting for this. It's about time. <laughs> I, I apologize profusely for keeping you waiting. You know, some of it is just finding the right time yeah. and the right angle. And, no, I know. And the bolt of inspiration came and I said, I need Sophie Louie <laughs> on the show. But honestly, if we weren't socially distanced, I'd ask you to pinch me because this is so cool really? to see you in the flesh. I mean, this is one of those surreal episodes, even more so than like the premiere in the sense that I see you on TV every day. Like you're a staple in the background of my life and the lives of many others as well. And you have been for many years. Oh, that's so nice. Is that weird? Like knowing that you're a routine part right. of so many people's day and lives and you kind of have this like one way relationship with so many people <laughs> in the city. Is that weird? Well, it it is. And I have to remind myself of that sometimes. And the only reason I was impatient, by the way, just to go back to my first point, is because I really enjoy listening to your podcast. And I think you um, just have some real, you, you approach things from a fresher way, a point of view, I guess, than a kind of a, an old journalist <laughs> might, you know, because we just been, have, have been doing it for too long. But I just, very I find, I find your podcast really interesting. So, um, so I'm, I'm so pleased to be on. I do have to remind myself sometimes that People watch me, and I, I remember when I first started in television, I was grocery shopping with a friend, and I think I was goofing around being kind of, I don't know, raucous or something like that. And she mm -hmm. said, you know, people recognize you, so you <laughs> should probably, you know, behave yourself. And, um, and that was 20 years ago or whatever, a long time ago. And now I, it, I'm not as much of, I'm not goofing off in the grocery store as much, but, <laughs> but I do have to remind myself that you have this platform and people watch you and um right. and and um and it's 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 an important thing i've i've had new writers coming to the station who have become friends of mine and and when they became friends of mine they told me you know when i first started i was really intimidated by you and so those are the things that i have to remind myself that uh 
while I just think of myself as the same old Sophie I've always been, yeah, um, there may be a perception that you know <laughs> that's a little different, and yeah. I have to be cognizant of that. And that's so fascinating because before we started recording, you were saying that on your way here. You accidentally crossed, we won't say what political uh, rally, but yeah. you were accidentally crossed a political rally. Yeah. And the first thought in your mind was like, I hope no one gets a photo where it looks like I'm part of this rally. I'm just trying to get past it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's not the first time that's happened. I had an anti-mask rally a few weeks ago, walk right by my car. Like they were in the middle of the road and the VPD was le- leading them through the streets know, of downtown right? Vancouver so and traffic was stopped and they were right next to my car. I quickly put on my mask because I didn't want them to recognize me and yeah. then start, you know. Or to look like or it was, Sophie Louise in well, a just, car rally. With yeah, I just, I didn't want them rally. to start yelling at me because I'm in the media. There's also and that, I'm, yeah. You know, fake news and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's been a crazy occurrence in the last I mean, I guess since Trump, but especially with this anti-mask stuff, I see what some journalists go through. I mean, they're just trying to film and, mm-hmm. and get footage and even talk to them, and they're getting yeah, harassed. Yeah. And I feel for our uh, field crews, yeah, especially this past year. I mean, even even before this past year, but it it's tougher because they're dealing with safety issues now as well, right? Um, and not just safety issues like an angry person might get in their face and and push them, which has happened in the past too, but someone might touch them or spit on them. Like things And you that, see people doing that, like yeah. actively coughing on people or trying to get in their personal space. It's mm-hmm. scary. Mm-hmm. So shout out for those who are listening, uh, uh, the crews from Global and all the other mm-hmm. uh, stations who are still going out and gathering news because it's not an easy time to Absolutely. do that right now. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being here. And as you are familiar with the show, you might know that I demand a lot for my guests. <laughs> and so I need something from you okay. right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Can you confirm on record mm-hmm. that your co-anchor on Global, Chris Galis, yes. and I yes. are indeed best friends forever? He said it, didn't he? <laughs> he said it on TV. So it must be true. <laughs> Chris is, I'm sure, have you met Chris? I have not. That's the best part. <laughs> Chris is a great guy, and he, he like would him. enjoy h- hanging out with you and chatting with you, I'm <laughs> sure. Um, so, yes, I will say, if he were to meet you in person <laughs> and talk to you, you guys would be tight. <laughs> and so I want to bring people up to speed in case they are not aware of this whole situation. I made this declaration at this year's Variety BC Show of Hearts Telethon, mm-hmm. and usually it's a live show, yeah. but because of COVID, all the different co-hosts, myself included, were recording their parts separately. And I think Jordan Armstrong was the only one that was doing a live feed because yeah. he was reading out the donation the tally. tallies. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in filming my co-hosting section, I was consistently tasked with throwing it back to you and Chris. Yeah. And you guys were not in the studio. You didn't see this. And while I was recording my parts, literally on the first take, I just said, now back to Sophie Louis and my best friend forever, Chris Gales. <laughs> and the take was done. And the producers were like, oh, you're, you're friends with Chris. And oh, they was, believed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nope, never met him, never spoke to him. Seems like a great guy. Just thought that would be really funny. And there was that like awkward pause when I said that, 
where I wasn't sure if they were going to be like, listen, noob, just read the script <laughs> and get on with it. But the producer was like, oh, yeah, that is funny. Like, we're going to put that in our notes yeah. so that when Chris and Sophie film, yeah. we'll let them know that that's how you're throwing it to them. So, I mean, it kind of lost the the live spontaneity of that joke. But I kept it up. Like I kept yeah. for every throwback, I was like, "Oh you kept yeah, saying you're, you're <laughs> my BFF." Best friend, Chris they like that kind of stuff. I mean, they do give us a lot of script for that show, but mm-hmm. um, but they like us to go off script and in, inject Improvise. our own personality and yeah. and whatever experiences we've had meeting families and things like that. So, welcome to the show of hearts telethon, by the <laughs> Thank way. You. And I'm sure you'll be you'll be uh, commissioned every year to come. <laughs> and one day we'll be back in a studio together. And it, it is a lot of fun. It's actually- It looks like a lot of fun. It's a it, lot was, of, it is exhausting too, yeah. but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So I just have to ask, because when the live, well, not the live broadcast, but when the broadcast went out, I had friends texting me and just being like, what is this thing with you and Chris? So <laughs> when you guys were filming your section, yeah. were you approached with like, oh, hey, the the guy that kind of does some stuff for CKNW- yeah. He's calling you his best friend. Like, how did they approach that? I'm trying to remember. I think we definitely knew you had said that. I don't think they, I don't know if they played the tape for us or if it was in our notes. Okay. <laughs> but we definitely knew. Did it take him by surprise? What was his reaction? I don't think so. Okay. No. He just rolled with it. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's good that way. I mean, Chris used to do morning TV as well, mm-hmm. as, as did I, as you mentioned off the top. So mm-hmm. there's something about morning TV that just also, uh, you just roll with stuff, yeah, and it's it's totally normal. I don't think he took. Um, I I mean, he knew it was a joke. And, yeah, yeah. So he's he's got a good sense of humor, and I yeah, I think that's how they did it. Maybe maybe they played it for us a clip of it before, just so we'd have an idea because they like us. <laughs> they want us to feel like it's natural, mm-hmm. and it definitely came off that way in the broadcast. People thought that it was live, and I had to tell people really? like, no, it was not. <laughs> we like recorded on different days. Oh, the it, magic of television! Right? <laughs> We're not actually sitting um, uh, down in downtown Vancouver either for the six o'clock news with the f- sales in the background. We're I in Burnaby <laughs> on a green screen. I was shocked to learn that when I, <laughs> I was like, really? Yeah, I was. <laughs> when I was first at NW, I was like, where's the TV part? <laughs> and they're like, it's not here. It's not even in Vancouver. And I was very, very surprised. But <laughs> so anyways, I have been meaning to have you on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I just needed to find, you know, that right inspiration, the right time to have mm-hmm. you. We're going to get a little serious. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've seen you become a lot more vocal about is anti-Asian racism and anti-Asian hate. We know that hate crimes were up 97% overall in Vancouver in 2020. And anti-Asian hate crimes were up 717%. About 1,200 anti-Asian attacks were reported in Canada. Mm-hmm. And we know that number's rising in the U.S. as well. And this isn't new, right? No. There, there is a deep, mm-hmm. shameful history on this continent in the and in this province as well of anti-Asian discrimination. I mean, in B.C., we've had segregation. We've had literal riots with violence against Chinese and Japanese and South Asian folks. In this country, of course, we've had the head tax. Mm-hmm. I recently learned that the U.S. was basically an open borders country, and then the first immigration bill that was passed in the U.S. was targeted at Chinese folks. Mm-hmm. You are ancestrally Chinese. You're a high-profile, successful Asian woman who I would say is emblematic of Vancouver. I mean, you deliver news media to a large portion of this city on a nightly basis. 
and you represent a certain Vancouverness, I would say, <laughs> you know, in the cosmopolitan sense as well. Right. Personally, in terms of this disturbing trend that we're seeing in the last year or so, does it surprise you to see the anti-Asian sentiment in this city and, frankly, this country? Well, I guess I have sort of two answers to that. Mm-hmm. I guess it it's it surprises me. Oh, no, it, it really doesn't surprise me. I guess it saddens me how violent it's become since the pandemic started. But I think the thing that surprises me is that we're talking about it because it has always existed Mm -hmm. and we just never talked about it. And that's me included. I wouldn't, I I guess it wasn't even something I thought about that much Mm -hmm. before um, the last few years. It wasn't really the pandemic that started me thinking about it um, more. Uh, I would say the Justin Trudeau um, blackface, I guess it was, or brownface, um, Blackface, yeah. yeah. The the pictures, that's sort of, I think, got me going even before the pandemic. That's interesting. So what was it about the blackface incident that sparked a thought in your mind? I think it, it got me, it got me thinking about the underlying racism that has always existed that we sort of we the whitewashing that we do hmm. as um people of color um and and which I have done and sorry I, I know that our listeners can't tell but I keep using a Kleenex because I have allergies. spring allergies. allergies um so I I think it was it was it reminded me of some of the names that I had been called I think when I was younger and even older and it reminded me of the the stereotypes that I've faced throughout my life that I've just had to put up with mm-hmm. and it was somehow accepted and I somehow that that incident brought it out you know I didn't I wasn't outraged by the incident but it it just brought up a lot of these thoughts for me and then with the pandemic uh, last March and April when um, we started seeing videos of people being pushed to the ground mm-hmm. and um, Chinatown being defaced. Uh, it uh, it was something I think like if if chi- if um, graffiti had been put up before, I don't know that we would have necessarily done stories on it. Right. Uh, but because we started seeing more of those incidents and, and there was a... Um, more of an awakening when George Floyd was killed. Um, I think it all just started coming out. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I think the thing that surprised me more was that we were giving voice to it more. We were talking about it. We were, we were um, openly discussing that it's a real thing and it's not just something we're going to sweep under the rug yeah. anymore. And that's a good type of surprise, obviously, I think. Yeah, right? it's a good type of surprise, although it has been really emotional. Like, I, Of course, I, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, I thought that I was over the emotional peak of it um, yeah. after spring and early summer of last year. Um, I think a lot of us felt very dark days in the in the early days of the, uh, of the pandemic. We felt mm-hmm. very, you know, there was this dark cloud hanging over us at that time. And then um, George Floyd was killed and, and there was so much grief and yeah. anger over that. Um, and then I, I started to feel a little bit more hopeful i guess after that but 
gradually it's <laughs> the the sadness is sort of come back, you know, in the past few months. Yeah. I don't know why it is, um, it seems to be increasing in the U.S. now as opposed to last year, or maybe it was increasing last year for them as well. But it just seems like we're seeing more incidents in the U.S. now. Yeah. You almost get the idea that there's like this latent underbelly that just gets flared up when certain things happen, right? And it's always been there. So even if the incidents are not there there's like this thing that's bubbling against under the surface right it's there and i think um i think that well when i was younger and i was called names i was probably told to just brush it off it's not a big deal names can't hurt you that kind of thing yeah but i think that's the experience for a lot of people of color a lot of immigrant communities right yeah but at the same time those names yes they hurt me but they also um allow other people in society to, I guess, believe that we're lesser or we're less Mm -hmm. than somehow. We're less human. We're less Canadian. We're less American. We're less white, for sure. Yeah. And that dehumanizes us, that allows aggressors to feel that they have the right to push someone physically or, you know, to shoot up um, people at their place of work. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so while they may just be names, I think they can progress Yeah, to, to awful tragedies that we've seen throughout. It's interesting that you brought up the Justin Trudeau blackface incident, because I've talked about that on this show. And what I've said is I felt like that was a really lost opportunity to talk about racism, right? Mm-hmm. And understanding that, I mean, cause you heard from a lot of people like, well, well, Justin Trudeau isn't racist. He doesn't hate black people mm-hmm. or he doesn't hate people of another ethnicity. Yeah. And I think that mm-hmm. can be true, mm-hmm. but we still have to have this conversation of why at any time it was acceptable to caricaturize yeah. a certain ethnicity and why someone who is white and privileged as he was felt emboldened to do it as if there was nothing wrong with that. Right. And I think we in the politicization of an election and and trying to convince people that oh, Justin Trudeau isn't a racist, we really lost an important conversation yeah. that I don't think we'll ever get. Like, I think it for me, it would be so fascinating just to have an honest conversation with the prime minister and be like, no judgment, but why did you wear blackface so much? What was it about blackface that you thought was funny or yeah. amusing or whatever, right? Like, just to get his honest take on it and to sort of understand you know, his blind spots and, and his privilege. But it's one, you know, that's a conversation yeah. we'll never have, unfortunately. We definitely have to be off the record, I'm sure. But I think you're right. Like, there can be um, vi- racism that leads to violence, and there can be casual racism. There can be systemic racism. And um, it, I think there are just different layers to it that, and none of these layers are good layers. Yeah. But, uh I think just because we point out that something is not acceptable doesn't mean you're a terrible person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. Um, it just means you should think about what's behind your your actions and what are you really saying to the rest of the world with those actions. And I'm not perfect, and I'm I don't know you that well, but I <laughs> guess you're not. Perfect. I've made mistakes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but I I think I before the Trudeau blackface thing, I, I I hadn't really considered 
whether dressing up that way was appropriate or not appropriate. But for some reason, when I saw it that time, I thought, well, I I don't know that we want to be made fun of anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't know that I I want my food to be mocked anymore or it smells mm-hmm. weird or you know, that kind of stuff. Because it's delicious and <laughs> I'm sad for you that you can't taste it the way I do. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's just it. Like, I feel like there's this umbrella idea of discrimination, and within that, there's racism. And then within racism, you have different types, right? You have the overt racism, Mm -hmm. the hate crimes, the stuff that I think we all recognize as racist. Mm -hmm. You have the covert racism where it's not really said out loud, but there's things that are kind of racist. There's the casual racism where Mm -hmm. things are said out loud and expressed, but not really seen or dissected as mm-hmm. discriminatory. And then there's systemic racism where it's it's less about the individual, but more about asking, hey, why do these groups have negatively different outcomes than other groups, even though everything else is equal? Right. right? Yeah. And I think, you know, I've actually been fortunate because I was studying systemic racism 15 years ago. And certainly the concept is much older than that. And at the time in academia, we actually called it structural racism. That's mm-hmm. how I kind of knew the the concept. Mm-hmm. And I found that lately in the last year, I've been explaining that type of racism, systemic racism to a lot of people. And again, in that context of like, why do indigenous communities have different health outcomes or navigate the healthcare system differently mm-hmm. when we all have, quote unquote, access to universal healthcare? Mm-hmm. Another thing that I always bring up, and this is I mean, kind of ironic, but I but I ask, you know, why are the majority of opinionists in media mm-hmm. white? If you open up a newspaper, chances are the opinion columnist in the op-ed section is a white person. And yeah. I say that as a person with two op-ed gigs in this city, but I yeah, still but bring you, it up. But that's new. Yeah, exactly. And it's 2021. How are you explaining that sort of hidden systemic racism to people who just don't get it. Like, I, th- I still feel there's a big proportion of the population that only sees racism in terms of a hate right. crime or, you know, something that is violent or offensive. Like, uh, right. yeah, o- yeah. overtly offensive. Yeah. How am I? Well, I'm, I think I'm explaining when I'm asked to because I, I don't get asked that often. <laughs> Which is funny, considering, I don't know if it's because I don't see many people anymore because of COVID. <laughs> True, yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't think any white people have asked me, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I've done, so this is your podcast. I did a podcast with the BC Lions uh, a few weeks ago. And oh, okay, we cool. talked about it, but, you know, it was another um, Chinese Canadian. and Yeah. Um, the podcast host was black. So (laughs) I I don't know. We talked about it, but they seem to have a pretty good idea anyway. So how do I explain it? The way you just did, but I guess I would also say, so we're talking about systemic racism, Mm -hmm. structural racism. Um, Or even just casual racism. Or or all those different layers. Like what, bringing up the shootings in Atlanta, for instance, and there was a, um, there were some people who said, well, it's not a hate crime because he said he had a sex addiction. Um, I think maybe in terms of the law, yeah, like maybe they can't prosecute it as a hate crime. I don't know what, what the law is like in Atlanta. but So maybe that is the case and they can't prosecute it that way. But there's no doubt to, in my mind that race was a factor 
in and in very in many different ways that it was a factor. In outcome, in the people that were well, targeted, six, right? six, six Asian women were yeah. murdered. So um, it seems like there was a theme yeah. uh, for one thing. But also, I, and I don't know the background mm-hmm. of the victims other than I think one was a newly married couple. One had been working at the uh, as a handyman or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the six others, I, I don't had varying levels of jobs at the at these massage yeah. um, establishments. So, so I don't really know the background of the individual victims, but I think it raised questions for me about trafficking. Mm-hmm. about the opportunities for immigrant women in North America. Right. And so to me that that race does play a role. The racialization of these people and the uh of and the racialization of immigrants mm-hmm. to North America played a role. Was it legally a hate crime? I'm not a lawyer, I'm not the judge, I'm not the jury. I I don't know, but it race was a factor. Yeah. So that strikes me as having elements of structural and systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it that well. But. And I think we're, we're touching on the same thing is, is looking at certain outcomes and disparate outcomes and saying, why is it that this group was targeted or why is it that this group doesn't do as well? Or mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, I, sorry, I missed out the yeah. totally um, obvious one of the fetishization of, of Asian women. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, Again, I don't know what these six Asian women did at these massage parlors, but I think that's a pretty obvious one, a glaring one in in our society. Yeah. And so let's get into that, actually, because Asian women, I find, are at this interesting, disturbing intersection of misogyny and racism, Mm -hmm. right? The fetishization, as you just said, like, and there's this stereotype, and I, I feel gross just saying it, but the idea that, like, Asian women are obedient to men. Mm-hmm. They're quiet. They're modest. You even get into the thing of like, oh, they don't, you know, they don't have hair on their body or oh, stuff yeah, like that, yeah. right? Certainly, I mean, you are a, a powerful Asian woman, but how harmful has this stereotype been to you personally? And how harmful is it to the Asian girls and women in our communities, in our in our society? Because it is something yeah. that's out there, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's definitely out there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's, um, well, it's, it's, it's degrading. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm sort of making a, for the listeners who can't see, I'm making a face because it's kind of just to be super eloquent about it. It's icky. Uh, yeah, it's just, it was icky saying that and bringing that up for sure. Yeah. So you almost feel like you're, uh it's it's victimizing in a certain way, I guess. Um, and it it's uh, and it's just not true. It's mm-hmm. the the Asian women in my life are not demure, obedient, submissive. <laughs> uh, I, I laugh at that <laughs> that kind of description when I think of my mother and my aunt, you know, my <laughs> elders, because they're so not that, and they they would bristle at that kind of description. So I you know, how does it how does it harm um Asian women? Well, I think you you see it when they're targeted by um by the guy in Atlanta for instance or even uh people who would punch them here, yell at them here in North America. 
um, spit at them. A, a lot of um, not just Asians, but Asian women have been specifically targeted, mm -hmm. I guess, because there's that perception that they're weaker and they're demure and they're not going to talk. They're not going to, you know, fight back, that kind of thing. So it can lead to it can lead to that kind of violence and um, victimization. Yeah. Which is also bananas because at the same time you have this other stereotype of like the tiger mom. Mm -hmm. Which is not those things at all, right? It's yeah. not mm -hmm. um, uh, not obedient to men or mm -hmm. or quiet or anything like that. You know, there's that other extreme stereotype, and somehow we've like allowed these two these dichotomous, yeah, discriminatory stereotypes to to exist in our society. I think it's where where I look at a lot of this, and and again, I, I obviously can't speak as an Asian woman, but certainly when it comes to stereotypes or whatever, it is that issue of when someone meets you for the first time or someone's heard of you, mm -hmm. they might already have an idea of who you are mm -hmm. without even knowing who you are. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's the idea, and again, I'm just mm -hmm. hi being hypothetical here, but it's the idea of like, oh, I'm going to interview uh, uh, Sophie Louis for a job. I bet she's super quiet and, <laughs> you know, is going to, you know, be a very diligent yeah. worker and do everything yeah. I say and all this other and stuff. She's and she's good at math. And she's great at math. But she's really right? not. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where it's harmful. Whereas, again, I think someone who is white would not have to deal with those kind of preconceived notions. Notions, yeah. Yeah, they're more like a blank, you know, um, a blank slate. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I mean, and I have such a different, I mean, everyone's story is unique, right? Mm -hmm. So mine is uh, I was raised by my Chinese mother who immigrated from Hong Kong and my Caucasian stepfather mm -hmm. who was born and raised in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, and we we lived in a very Western style household. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had some of my mom's Chinese influence, but she was very Westernized. She moved here in the early 70s and I didn't, I didn't necessarily have the same kind of upbringing as other um, first-generation Chinese-Canadians. Uh, so everyone's story is unique. And, and while someone sure. might assume about me that I know everything about Chinatown or I know everything about where's to get the best dim sum, um, I don't necessarily. And it leaves me feeling sometimes like, well, I'm not quite Canadian enough, but I'm also not quite Chinese enough. And I'm I'm letting <laughs> down both sides. I'm letting down um, Chinese people who want to speak to me in Cantonese and I can't answer them. And I'm letting down white people who think that they're, um, you know, who, <laughs> who think that they're trying, you know, connecting with me by asking me where's the best place to get dim sum because I don't have an answer for them. Right. So it's, uh, it feels like a weird little. But then the rub <laughs> also is that, and again, we're talking in ge very general terms, but I feel like the rub also is like, even though you might have a different experience than a first-generation immigrant, yeah. you are subject to the same stereotypes. Not that the immigrant oh, should totally. be subject to those mm -hmm. stereotypes either, but it's like you're still blanketed with the same Wait, And you ideas, don't consider, right? you don't even, it, it doesn't occur to you that you might be subject to those yeah. same types of, of things until someone actually says it to you or you start to notice, well, I didn't get that job because of whatever reason. Um, I... It, it didn't occur to me, I guess, as a kid. I, I had the name calling, for sure. 
Um, I've had I had incidents in my childhood, but it didn't really occur to me that it was a big deal until I got older. Yeah, and then it only only then did I start to see the unfairness of it and the hurt. Of it. What would you say to someone who, who says, ah, name calling is something that happens in school and whether it's being judged on your looks, like, I don't know, your skin color, mm-hmm. how your eyes look, or being called uh, a dum-dum or mm-hmm. stupid or whatever, it's mm-hmm. all the same. Like, what's the big deal? Kids kids are mean. Right. Well, <laughs> well, like I, said, I, like I said earlier, I think that name, name calling may seem innocent, yeah. but it's... Um, then it it puts that person who's being targeted into a corner and it's it's labeling them as this they're only this person they're only what did the kids call me when i was a kid chocolate face which sounds so they called you chocolate face i know right they called me well one kid called me potato skin i still remember potato that. skin yeah i've never heard that but they called you chocolate face interesting okay. i think i just tanned really well as a child and yeah. I, I don't know maybe they called me yellow face too i can't remember now burnt, yeah i got burnt toast um so i must have really tanned well huh yeah i know okay weird so they're mixing up their these dumb kids words. But then you get you get tagged you get tagged as only being burnt toast or cho- it sounds so silly but you sort of get painted into that you're just the Chinese person and and that's the only way you are known, um, which is not you know there's so much more to a person than yeah than that. Well, for me, I find and and so when we talk about the difference of kids being mean or, or insulting, I mean obviously I'm not advocating for any name-calling or kids be mean, but I think there is a di- difference when you're attacking someone's very intrinsic traits, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's, you know, if they're gay or, or if they're uh, of a certain group. Mm-hmm. Because if you if, if if you say, oh, well, you're Chinese, you're brown, and you're saying that in negative connotation, I am that thing. I can't, yeah. I can't change it. If you call me dumb, I, I, you know, I, I can still do something with my life. I can, you know, <laughs> you can study more, whatever. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and again, even the dumb thing, like it's maybe for people with developmental disabilities, you know, then it's also crosses that, that line of becoming offensive. But I just feel like with there, there is like a group of teasing that it's not that big of a deal because it's not intrinsic to who you are as a person. But when you're teasing or, Name calling someone based on their sexual orientation, their race, their you know uh, intellectual you ability, you know in, intrinsic intellectual ability. Then you're really attacking that person for something they can't even change. Yeah, and that's something that is. So them. you're saying they're you're, you're you're saying it's a bad thing, you know that that you're this that I'm chocolate face. Well, is that bad? I mean, <laughs> something that you have no control. Over, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> so I think that's. Uh, that is, and it make I think it can make kids in certain circumstances, you know, reject their um, culture or their families, mm-hmm. um, be embarrassed by their families in some cases. I, I wasn't, but I think that it can happen. No, but I mean, it's a common thing that I think a lot of immigrant children go through where they, their food is called smelly. And yeah. then they go home and then they're like, I don't want, you know, my yeah. Culture's food anymore. Right? Yeah, I only want peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> yeah. which are also good. <laughs> but but then you miss out on 
all sorts of things if you don't just open your mind. And, and I, I feel for kids who have to put up with that stuff. I don't know if it still happens these days with kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have kids, so I hope not, but I'm sure it probably does. Yeah, I mean, it certainly happens with adults. I mean, I, I think obviously we are broadening the conversation. And it's not to say that Canada is this terrible place. That's the other thing that really annoys me is like, People say, well, Canada is such a great place. And it's like, listen, obviously there are great things about Canada. It is one of the best places to live Mm -hmm. in. But it doesn't mean that we just ignore all the issues or all the problems and try to be better. Totally. And it happens with adults where because of what you look like, who you are, you get prejudged. And it's, I don't know, I'm starting to become a lot more wiser to it in terms of how people look at me. And I've had certainly conversations with uh, people like you and people who are in politics as well to, talking about this. And it does hit differently. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot, but the the Bowen Ma tape, you know, where she was described in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And there were some commentators that said it was racist and then others were saying, how can you say it's racist? And it's like, well, it was kind of touching on a certain trope, a yes. certain fetishization of Asian a- women. Absolutely. And right? that's the thing that I think a lot of people were afraid to say out loud too, because- <laughs> they, because there was they, pushback. I heard I've heard it on the radio. I've heard I've seen it on TV where someone said, you know, that was kind of racist. And then someone else yeah. would push back and say, no, no I wasn't racist. Let's not get extreme. Let's not blow this out of proportion. But why not? I mean, it's isn't that where everyone's mind went when they heard those comments made? I mean, it's it yeah, is. Yeah, I touched on that trope yeah. for me for sure. Yeah. Right? And I and I know so Bowen as a person and I know that she is not a stereotype at all. Not at all. No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I used to think that w- growing up as a kid in the 70s and 80s, that, uh, and I guess nine, early 90s as well, that women were totally equal and there was no need for a feminist movement anymore and we were fine. <laughs> I can just get there. But again, it didn't occur to me until I got older and got into my career and started facing the glass ceiling that, um, and not even the glass ceiling because I've I've had great success in my career, but just certain attitudes toward women. It didn't occur to me until I was um, And so tell me about that. What things did you encounter that maybe made you rethink that position? I I, I didn't, I don't think I felt a glass ceiling for myself. Again, I've, I've had great. Um, advancement in my career, but I have seen a, a lot of men at the in high positions, and I've felt token tokenized um, often when I've been asked to do. Uh, why don't you do the um, health segment or something like that? And you know what? I love health news, but it f- kind of felt like that's what we're going to get women to do. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like yeah. that kind of thing. That was sort of earlier on in my career. Mm. Um, and, and you know, to see men and women being paid differently. Mm. I, uh, <laughs> I'm i a proponent of, of wage parity and sure. wage equity. Um, you know, for the same, for the same work, it, it, um, I've seen it happen over my career and, it just didn't occur to me as I was growing up that it was an issue. I thought we were on equal footing. And I, I see more and more that we're still not. And, and you know, likewise with um, people who are racialized in Canada. Mm. It didn't occur to me when I was young, other than the name calling, I guess. Because I just thought that was how 
you live. I just thought that's what, as a person of color, that's part of your existence to be called these names. Right. So it, I didn't see it as a problem, I you guess. bought into the yeah. subtle normalization. This is just of what it. we do. Yeah. Um, but as I've, as I've gotten older and um, have thought more about it, it I, I've seen, yes, it is deeply entrenched. It, mm-hmm. it is systemic. It is structural. Um, and it's not something we should accept anymore. And it's not something you're going to just fix like mm-hmm. that because it is so deeply entrenched. But I think by talking about it and by listening to people talk about it, it hopefully we take steps in the right direction. Yeah. And I've talked about this on on NW as well, where there was a study, and I think it was focused on Toronto, but I'm sure the data is similar in, in other Canadian cities and in other American cities, where they were showing the amounts of professionals. So people who had, you know, a certain amount of education and were joining professional organizations. Mm-hmm. And so based on a percentage, when you looked at the number of women that actually advanced to the executive level, mm-hmm. there was a disparity, mm-hmm. right, between men and women. And then when you dug in even deeper and you looked at the percentage of women of color mm-hmm. that advanced to the executive level, there was an even bigger disparity, right? And, and and again, you're holding all things equal. You're not looking at raw numbers. You're holding all things equal and keeping things in proportion. And there's like clearly this <laughs> divide. And at some point you have to dig into it and say, why? You know, everything else is equal in terms of education, in terms of mm-hmm. people entering certain sectors. Why is it that it's almost always white men that are yeah. advancing and to the top? And why is that? I, I honestly, I, well... And I think that's the well, that and that's the challenge of going through this idea of systemic racism, mm-hmm. right? It's messy. It's complicated. I don't. I don't think there's any easy solution. Or you just reach for what's familiar. I don't. Or familiar to them, if they're the yeah. ones who are already in power, they just reach for the next familiar thing. I, I don't know, but why wouldn't you want to have people at the table who have different perspectives? This is one thing that um, bothered me when I started to see layoffs in newsrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been going on throughout my whole career seeing layoffs. Uh, when you take people away, not necessarily, they don't have to be reporters or anchors, um, but just when you start to reduce the size of a newsroom, you start to reduce the number of voices who might have input. Mm-hmm. It could be a lighting tech who would have who would have something to say about a story or just, um, or it might be the receptionist or it might be you know whomever but it the more voices you have i just think the better the conversation is going to be yeah absolutely and you see it in you see it come up in in news in a lot of ways like the indian protest farmers mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it was a lot of south asian voices in media that were driving that explanation of what's happening in the world because mm-hmm. you talk to a lot i mean mm-hmm. i talked to a lot of people in media and they had no idea you know, they yeah. was, it was tough for them to explain. It was even tough to navigate who was organizing the protests here, who was organizing the protests in India. What mm-hmm. exactly were the cultural and ethnic tensions over there? How do you explain that? Because it was, it was complicated, or it is complicated. And locally here, it was a lot of South Asian voices, including Nitu Garcha, yeah. who were driving that explanation to be able to deliver the news to a general audience. Yeah, and I think... Her coverage 
was great, and it was nice to see it um, at other outlets as well. But what what a responsibility to put on. There's that other side too, to put right? On Nithu, <laughs> or to put on um, any of the other reporters who were. I, I saw a lot of um, uh, reporter uh, reporters of South Asian background in Vancouver who were tweeting about it and Facebooking about it. I didn't necessarily see all their stories, but mm-hmm. I know that there was they were clearly passionate about it. Mm-hmm. But gosh, the pressure that that puts on the reporter to try to be the voice or you know try to pitch that story and and make sure it gets told and then also make sure it gets told responsibly when it does have so many layers and angles and um uh so so many but that's different- why you need again more diversity mm-hmm. so as opposed to there being one south asian person who's going to cover all the south yeah. asian stories yeah <laughs> you need more of them that can all you know contribute and spread and share that responsibility and they say. need support from those of us who are you know surrounding them they need us to be supportive of that and to offer help and to listen and um i mean it's just i i think about the um the democracy protests in hong kong mm-hmm. and i am not i'm not an expert on that at all sure yeah but that's it, fine. it it definitely touches me in a way that it might not touch um, someone else in my newsroom because mm-hmm. that's where my family is from and I still have family there. So it, it matters to me. Mm-hmm. But I would feel such huge pressure to tell that story and get it right. <laughs> Sophie, you're Asian. Explain. <laughs> you should do it. <laughs> Explain this long historical <laughs> tension yeah. in another part of the world, please. But then you also feel like, well, someone has to. Yeah, and thankfully, you know, we do have a lot of Chinese Canadian mm-hmm. journalists here. Mm-hmm. You know, Ian Young at the oh, South China so Morning Post comes to mind, and and his coverage of sort of all things Hong Kong is yeah. incredible. You know, he's, he's such a good writer. Yeah, I just oh, yeah, really, yeah. really enjoy. Well, I love his tweets too, but I yeah. really enjoy his reading writing his, too. Yeah. his articles. Yeah, absolutely. When you're on TV, are you dealing with a conservative audience that watches the news what's the demo like like i imagine it's a lot more mixed i find mm-hmm. on the radio i'm almost in like enemy territory because i'm <laughs> this like progressive younger-ish type person and it's a it's a older audience it's mm-hmm. a perhaps whiter audience what's it like on tv i imagine it's a lot more mixed right in terms of your yeah demos. i think it's more i think it's more mixed i don't know what nw's demographic is but um and neither do I. I'm, I'm mostly gauging it based on feedback that I get. Yeah, but I, I mean, I say I don't know. That's because I don't. I don't have the data, but yeah. I certainly have an idea. Yeah, uh, that it's older, and um, would it be more suburban? I don't. I'm not sure about that. But definitely, you tend to think of NW's audience as a bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, NW listeners. I, when I say older, oh, I, I mean more experience, more experience. More <laughs> experience. Uh, I used to work at NW, by the way. I know, Many, yeah. many, many years yeah. ago. Um, anyway, so Global's audience, I think, probably is a little bit younger. Um, and a little, yeah, definitely, I think it's maybe a little more, um, there's, it's uh, spread across age groups, um, incomes, uh, geography. Mm-hmm. So w- when I'm doing the show or when I'm writing a story or something like that, what do I think about in terms of our target? We think of our target demo as 25 to 54. 
yeah, I think it's pretty, broad. pretty evenly split between men and women. Yeah. So that's the, it's basically someone who's got kids and who's working and taking the kids to school and, which is funny because that's not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not taking kids to school. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, s- single, I guess, ish. My partner's in California, but, you know, I live alone. And so I'm not even really the target demo, but that's typically what I would think of as our, as our average viewer. Yeah. So weird story, and I wasn't going to bring this up, but you just kind of did. When mm-hmm. I was looking up your biography, I was trying to look up little tidbits of information, mm-hmm. and I search. Sophie Louis biography. Mm-hmm. Literally, like seventy percent of the websites on the first page is like, is Sophie Louis single? Yeah. Sophie Louis relationship status. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't type that. I just typed biography. Like, I wanted to get your <laughs> professional biography. I didn't type anything to search that. Right. That's so weird. Well, right? yeah. And that kind of goes into maybe not the the racism element, the but kind female. of the, mis- the misogyny element, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, yeah, the won't. first thing people want to look up in your biography is like, what's your marital status? I know. I know. Um, I think that's, I think you've totally hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly <laughs> why, because female anchors, we get, you know, are you married? I remember I had a, a viewer on Facebook who was, who ca- I don't know if she was messaging me directly or she was posting on my wall or something like that, who was very angry. She hated me for some reason. And she would target me also because I didn't have kids. And she would say things like, well, you don't understand because you don't have kids or you hmm. can't cover the story because you don't have kids. And um, like, it's a terrible thing that I'm not a mother. Hmm. Um, and she was very mean about it. She went away. So I don't know if it was just a troll or if she was a real viewer. But but we do, female um, journalists do get targeted for such ridiculous things like yeah. that or our hair or our clothes or our weight or if you're pregnant on TV oh, why are you you're you're so huge get off the television and it's embarrassing you know that kind of stuff and it is i don't get as much of it lately or maybe i've just blocked enough people that sure <laughs> I don't, I've muted a lot of people, so yeah. I don't block it's good them. Strategy. I don't actually block anymore because I don't really want them to know that mm. they can continue targeting me all they want, but I'm not going to see it. Yeah. So yeah, we we do get a lot of that stuff. It's pretty. Yeah, sad. We, and certainly we've talked about that on the on the show here, particularly with regards to looks, right? Mm-hmm. That certainly women newscasters, women broadcasters get judged and in these weird ways about their looks, whereas their male counterparts don't. Mm -hmm. And that goes into systemic discrimination or systemic sexism. Yes. Right? Where it's like, why are women more subject to their hair and and what they're wearing? And And then if you look a certain way, well, she can't be smart. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. She only got there because of her looks and or stupid things like that. Whereas I don't think your male counterparts on television are getting that same type of critique and and not that they should I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, that type of critique is gross regardless yeah. of who it's targeting yeah but it's just like why like why in our society are women more subject to that than men understanding that there's ugliness in the world why is it disproportional well, that way well i think it it just goes back to that that idea that i had that we're all equal and there's no issue anymore <laughs> with sexism and clearly i was totally wrong when yeah. i was a child so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it it's 
I, I don't know what else to do about it. Um, I don't get I, why it upsets people so much, like especially the pregnancy one. And I know your colleague Christy Gordon got mm-hmm. this, and I saw recently on Twitter someone in Toronto got some mean yeah. messages about it, and it's yeah. like it's a and they look normal on TV, like as far yeah. as I could tell, they're pregnant. But yeah, like how do you think? How do you think? That, how do you think people, <laughs> women, procreate? That's what happens. Birds and bees, man. And then you have a child inside you. Of yeah. course, it's gonna show. And then apparently, if you're not, if you're not a mother, then you're criticized. Yeah, on, you on can't. That. You just you <laughs> cannot win. Do you think? And, and I want to bring it back to to talking about you know some of the racism that we're seeing in Vancouver, but I guess just discrimination in general. Do you think at some point Vancouver does have to confront not only its past, which I think is important, but also confront the present reality that, you know, maybe we're not this warm, inclusive, multicultural city that we claim to be. Like, we might be better than a lot of places in the world, but we're not the best. (laughs) We have a lot of work Mm -hmm. to do. I definitely think we have to. I feel like we are doing that I've had people reach out to me like privately and um in direct messages mm-hmm. and whatever texts if they happen to be friends of mine and just saying I'm so so sorry <laughs> when I post something and they apologize and it's not usually about me personally but um people will apologize to me and I feel like oh I'm it's not it's not me it didn't happen to me but thank you mm-hmm. um so I feel like it is it the dialogue is happening and and there is sort of an awakening to what people of color have had to go through here. Mm-hmm. I think the issue of systemic or structural racism is one that is going to take longer to sink in with people. Yeah. The very overt racism, it's pretty obvious to speak out against that kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's the structural because those 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 structures have been in place for so long and, yeah. and a lot of people have benefited from them. And so then how do you recognize them if you are one who has benefited from from yeah. them and then recognize them to be a bad thing for other people? Yeah. So I think that conversation is is gonna take a lot longer. But yeah, we have to we have I mean if we wanna we wanna take care of each other. Mm-hmm. In this world, it it matters. Yeah, it matters to confront those very uncomfortable things you might believe. It matters to to call it out. Um, it's and it's just, good it's for just everybody. Fair. Yeah, it's good. Like I think there's this misconception that there's like the blaming of the cis white male or whatever. And it's like, that's not what it's about. Like when we're talking about these broader issues, we're talking about something that will eventually be good for everyone involved. Yeah. And I, I feel sometimes like I don't, I, I might have um, white men in my life who will say something that, oh, do I want to point out to them that what they said is, it's just inappropriate because I don't want them to think that they're terrible people. That's not my point at all. Yeah. And so then I end up not saying anything. But then by not saying anything, then you just let the behavior continue. And Yeah. It's it's a tough one. I actually, I encourage being called out 
if it's coming from a genuine place. Because I've mm-hmm. learned a lot in terms of misspeaking, mm-hmm. conveying a message that I didn't intend mm-hmm. because I used the wrong language or framed it the wrong way. You know, and I'll, and I'll absolutely take my my lumps for something like that. And so I do appreciate being called out when, and I have been by both friends and strangers and people who have come out and say, hey, you know what? You said this in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. But when you say it this way, this is what it implies. And a lot of the times it makes sense. I, I don't think that there's like this, there, there's this idea of like PC cancel culture is targeting everything. And I don't really think... I don't know. In my experience, I just haven't seen it. I think people that have come to me with concerns, and it happens that I've said something or said something in a way, come to me in a very genuine way and try to explain something new to me. And it's very rare that I disagree with them. It's, yeah. it's often the case where I'm like, wow, you know what? That, that Those were my blinders. Didn't see it that way. Yeah. It's very rare for me to be like, no, you're wrong or no, this is not, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So it's yeah, I, I it's important hear, to have those conversations, I think. Yeah, I would like to hear that kind of stuff, too. And I know that sometimes if the media, it, the you know, the big bad media. The if, media, the yeah, mainstream the media. media. <laughs> if, if the media is targeted in, in criticism, sometimes I do feel internally my back getting up mm-hmm. about that. And I feel defensive internally. But then I stop myself and try to really process what is yeah. being said. Well, you know, maybe I don't feel that that was our intention as the media, but clearly it made this person feel that way. And mm-hmm. this is what this person saw when she or he saw our story. So I I need to think about that. Yeah. And think about how, how what we do is perceived. And I do believe, I mean, there are some people that maybe for whatever reason, for social media reasons or whatever, just want to you know, <laughs> gloat over people with moral su- superiority. Yeah. But I do think a lot of people that are pointing this out are doing so with, in good faith. Yeah. I think that having real conversations mm-hmm. like this, um, Twitter is entertaining at times, but it is also very... Yes. It's tough to have a good, deep, rich yeah. conversation on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I just have to tune out because of the snark. Some days I enjoy the snark because it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> but but other days I'm like, I'm It's my like bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but along with the snark, you need to have the, the full conversations. Sure. I want to ask you about something because this is, I, I've experienced this in a parallel way. I'm one of those people that is extremely critical of the government of China. And I've mm-hmm. always had an interest in foreign affairs and Canada's foreign relations. I have an MA in political science. And I think it's fair to say that the government of China is antagonistic towards Canada Mm -hmm. and Canadians. Mm -hmm. Trade disputes, two Michaels. Mm -hmm. We know that Canadians are harassed within our own borders Mm -hmm. by agents of the Chinese government. The plot to get Sam Cooper fired, your colleague. Yeah. My friend. And I'm saying that in the same Chris Galis way, (laughs) even though I do talk to Sam. Um, He's a great journalist. He's amazing. And, you know, we're not even talking about the the treatment of the Uyghurs, Tibet, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, There's the status long, of Taiwan. Yeah. I believe that we need to be critical of the government of China. And for me, it's easy to do that without being racist towards Chinese people, yeah. whether they're Chinese Canadians or Chinese people in China. Mm-hmm. And I guess as someone from Muslim ancestry, I don't, I'm not practicing. My mother was a little religious, I guess. Someone who was brown. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in high school when 
9-11 happened. So I was basically becoming a young adult in this 9-11 era. And so I understand the difference because I was against terrorism, of course. (laughs) But I know that terrorists don't represent Muslim people, certainly not Mm -hmm. Muslims in Canada. Does it surprise you that there are some people who still conflate like the government of China and Chinese people. And just because you're angry at the government of China, suddenly they take it out on Chinese Chinese people. people. Uh, Does it surprise me? Not really. I think the people who would conflate the two just, I think, don't have a great understanding of Chinese politics and, and, you know, um, the governing structure of China and the, and what the CCP is. And so because they don't have that knowledge, they will conflate the two. That mm. That's my guess. And that's why I think that's why that happens a lot. I, it's obviously not a good thing. And it, it, um, I think it is a real thing that people do conflate the two. And then Chinese people who have nothing to do with the CCP and have nothing to do with the Chinese government and may have nothing to do with mainland China either, yeah. um, get targeted for it because of of that kind of ignorance. It's And it's, it's the same thing, right? Like, because... Because we, we can't stop doing the stories. Like, <laughs> yeah. We just can't. We can't. We're not going to tell Sam Cooper, don't do your stories because yeah. they're important stories. It's coverage that needs to happen. Um, but, but I was going to say, it's the same thing like where we know that there are... And, and thanks to people like Sam Cooper, we know that there are people within Canada who might be Chinese who are working on behalf of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Just as we kn- knew that there are terrorist sleeper cells in North America. Mm-hmm. But this idea that now you're suddenly putting that on every Chinese person or every Muslim person or every brown person, it's so, like, it's ridiculous. And I, and I, yeah. I can't, I almost feel like people who do that either don't know anyone who's Chinese in their right. life or they, they just don't have exposure to understanding that basic thing of like, people are really different. Yeah. <laughs> and chances are that pe- someone, especially here, and I'm not, and I don't want to say, I'm trying to be careful because I, I don't even want to brush Chinese people in China with, with that mm-hmm. stereotype, but especially people here who are in Canada they left those places for right. something else. Yeah. And they've been adopting the lifestyle and culture here, right? Yeah. Well, and I I don't remember who I was talking to, but someone did point out to me um, recently, someone I think who who has Hong Kong roots, but this person I think did point out to me, well, there are people who um, are from China um, who may, you know, who are proud of their country. Mm-hmm. And... And that's okay. Like, and they shouldn't be targeted either because they're proud of their country. They, they're just, it just, the CCP and the Chinese government is, is the CCP and the Chinese government. It's not the Chinese people. Yeah. Or the Chinese culture. It's not the Chinese culture. Or history. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're just, they're different things. Did you feel targeted when you were um, a teenager and like, did, did you have those moments where you sort of felt like you wanted to shrink and hide in your own, into a corner because You know what's funny? So I, and I've told this as well, I have Nexus Mm -hmm. and I still get pulled by U.S. border security. I don't know why. I I have a clean criminal record. I have Nexus. They have my fingerprints, everything, retina scan on Mm -hmm. file, and yet it still happens. It's still a weird thing 
for me to travel. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can guess. Yeah. But again, clean criminal record. Nothing else for for them to pull me aside aside from my name. Right. Right. And and I guess my my origin of birth, my place of birth, because I was born in Karachi. Mm-hmm. One, I guess, sort of funny, but, you know, kind of sad story as well is like post 9-11. People would ask me, hey, do do you guys, do Muslims really believe that if you kill non-Muslims and you die in doing so, you'll get 72 virgins in heaven? And it's like, no. Like, <laughs> it doesn't say that anywhere in the Quran, mm-hmm. which is the definitive text for Muslims. Mm-hmm. My mom was socially liberal, but, but quite religious, and I grew up on this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned a lot about not only my own religion, but a lot of other religions around the world because that was like a big passion of hers. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard that 72 virgins thing until I heard it reported in the news media. Oh, really? And so, and I'm not defending any religion. I'm just saying that this is a very fringe idea that no Muslim I ever met talked about. I had never heard about it. They never heard about it. It's not in any serious religious text. And it became mainstream. It became this punchline about Muslims that like, oh, you know, you get 72 virgins if you blow yourself up in a suicide bombing. And it was sort of that moment where I realized that like narratives can take on lives of their own that don't reflect reality. Because that story, that narrative, which a lot of people now have heard of, Mm -hmm. doesn't really exist in the Muslim world. (laughs) When I think a lot of it is, um, we, we, perpetuate those narratives in media and news media as well. You know, I don't mean that we do it on purpose or anything like that, but because if you only do a story on um, Muslims you know, And media in, was slightly different back then. I do yeah. want it. It has evolved a little bit, but I'm just saying that that was but my experience. But if we only do stories on Islam and the connection to extreme Islam, um, then that's what people here are going to think is yeah. every... Muslim person. And, uh, you know, if our movies are only showing brown people as terrorists, terrorists, then that's what people here are going to think. So that's a, you know, that's pretty general and generalized. But, um, but yeah, if, if that's, if those are the caricatures (laughs) or the characters that they see, Mm -hmm. it's the same, like if you see a Chinese woman wearing, um, you know, the Changsam, the, the, the Chinese dress Mm -hmm. and with the hair up and smoking a cigarette and looking all (laughs) vampy. Like that's what that contributes to the, the stereotype, the hypersexualization of Asian Asian women. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's what people think. So I think we have a responsibility to, to tell different stories. Yeah. Um, Not just in the news media, but in Hollywood and, um, and in literature and, and it doesn't even need to be like not every not every movie directed and written by an Asian person needs to be about the quote unquote Asian experience. Right. It, it, it can just be written and directed by an Asian person. And and even in that respect, it will be diversifying the voices yeah. in the landscape. Yeah. Just recognizing that they exist and they, exist. they, they can <laughs> do things. It kind of reminds me and it, mu- and it must be a lot harder now, I think. I don't think anyone controls the narrative. I think things just kind of have a life of their own, especially with social media, right? And so it also reminds me of like the whole bat thing 
with oh, COVID. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. And they're showing, you know, this video was was out about, it was like a Fear Factor type show and that was filmed in Palau. It wasn't even in China. And they're showing people eating this bat soup or whatever. Was this like, it, this was at the beginning of COVID? When everything was happening, yeah. this this and similar videos were starting were to be out. shown. Oh, yeah, and then okay. people dug into it and were like, this isn't even happening in China. It's happening in Palau. And mm-hmm. also, uh, I think one of the clips in particular was from like a Fear Factor type oh, show. Oh, I see. Okay. Right? And it's like, yeah, you know, actually, there are some areas in China that consume bats, but different places in the world eat things that others would consider weird. Yeah. Right? Blood sausage. Yeah. That's European. Kind of gross. Maggot cheese. That's Italian. Like, burgoo. Great brand in Vancouver. Great restaurant. (laughs) But... Burgoo is like roadkill stew. Like it's oh. it's what people of the American South and Midwest would make because that was all that was available. So it'd oh, be I like see. possum, squirrel, raccoon. I didn't know and, that. In a stew. Yeah, yeah. That's what burgoo is originally, right. right? Okay, okay, yeah. And so burgoo actually makes a lot of stews and curries yeah. and that type of thing. Yeah. They don't make those type I of curries. I love their shepherd's pie. <laughs> <laughs> totally safe there. Totally mainstream <laughs> yeah. there. But it's like, People eat weird things. That's just yeah. people. And well, sometimes only, you gotta eat what, what what's there, right? Yeah. And so it's only like people of color they get a narrative about what they eat that defines them. But you know, those other examples of blood sausage and maggots cheese and mm-hmm. all those other stuff, or it's haggis, like, like, or hag. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like those aren't really defining those people. No. Well, I suppose haggis. Defines on Robbie Burns Day. Fair enough. But haggis is probably more, like, haggis is probably more mainstream to Scottish people than eating bats is to Chinese people. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so eating haggis, I think, is more of a mainstream Scottish thing. Yeah, Yeah, and it's actually pretty mainstream here, too. (laughs) Or it can be. Um, Yeah, it's, it, like, if I go, I like to travel, as, as you know, and, um, Wherever I go, I kind of want to try whatever is there. So when I was in Japan uh, several years ago, I, I I know people are going to get mad at me for this. Horse. I ate horse. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really remember what it tasted like, but I ate it. Um, I ate cod milt, which is cod sperm. <laughs> um, and I liked that. That was pretty good. Uh, so you, I don't know. I just like to... You want, to experience, you. you want to experience what the culture is. The one thing I did not eat in, in Cambodia was the fried spiders because I am so afraid of spiders. So I couldn't <laughs> even get close to them. But I, but people sh- people eat what they need to eat to survive. And then, yeah. and then as time goes on, um, those uh, survival strategies become cultural. And they, yeah. they are just, that's just what you eat. Yeah. I had some unique food in Japan. I didn't eat horse. I saw a lot of horse sashimi. I passed on that. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of different seafood. I don't even know if I would call it weird or anything. It was just different. It was unique. To Japan. And I hadn't yeah. really seen it there. I don't think I went for the cod sperm, but I definitely had a lot of different types of seafood. And some of it was really good. And some of it certainly was Not required you. taste. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the food in Japan. So I. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, so good. So good. I can't wait to travel again. What would you say to people who, I mean, maybe they're listening to this conversation and they're, and I would say we're privileged in different ways, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. but they, they're they listening to this and they go, well, Sophie, 
you're an anchor on the biggest six o'clock news program in this city. Why are you talking about racism? Like how, clearly racism is not a big problem. You've done well mm -hmm. for yourself. What do I say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I have done well for myself. I'm pretty <laughs> lucky. I do feel privileged and I know that I have privilege. Um, so why do I talk about it? Because it does hurt me. And because I, uh, you know, it, if it doesn't, people are not coming up to me and spitting in my face or coughing on me or pushing me or calling me names, um, at least not recently. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm lucky. But why, why, like, why should I accept that for other people? Why should I accept that that's just because it doesn't happen to me um, makes it okay that it happens to other people? Well, I have family here and I don't want them to be targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a very large Asian population here and I don't think it's fair that they're targeted. And it's just, um, it's just not right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it doesn't happen. But I also have a, a platform. I am not super comfortable with um, as I told you in email, I'm not super comfortable with this, I guess, responsibility or um, because I have been asked about this quite a bit in the past few weeks and, and last year when the pandemic started. I'm not an expert on racism, on anti-Asian issues. It's, it, I'm, other than I am Asian, I guess, um, so I don't, I hesitate to speak for an entire community. Um, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to be taken out of context, but I do feel like I have a platform and people do know who I am. And so it's time to speak out. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that everyone has to. And I've said that to some of my friends and colleagues who are also of Asian descent, like, here's an opportunity if you want it to be a part of these conversations, but please don't feel like you have to, because we're all going on our own journeys mm -hmm. of discovering. Um, I'm going on my own journey of discovering how I feel about these issues and it's evolving. It's changed since last year. It's changed since two years ago. Mm -hmm. And whereas I might've been more uh, or less willing to speak out about it two years ago, I'm becoming more willing to speak out about it now. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate you being here and being vulnerable. And I don't think anyone reasonably expects you to speak for the whole <laughs> community, but you are a high profile Asian woman, right? You have mm -hmm. that platform and you have your own lived experience. And so not that you have to, not that it's your responsibility to do so, but I do think that you speaking on these issues is important and it does make a big impact. And that was why I wanted to chat with you about this. It's not under the guise that you are the racism expert. It's mm -hmm. more understanding that you have a lived experience. You're in an interesting sector in media. So you're yeah. seeing things in a lot different, uh, in a lot different ways than other people would see things. And you can speak to these issues through your experience, right? I don't yeah. think anyone's expecting you to, no. <laughs> to speak on something that isn't your experience. And so just to, and going on that, like, I guess as, as we're sort of winding it down here, would you say that people who are of Asian descent navigate this city, this country, perhaps in a different way than white people would? Do you mean now or like now specifically well, think, or just well, sort of in general? Well, I think it's certainly historically, I think there's an, <laughs> there's an argument to say that they did. Yeah. But let's talk about now. I mean, do you think 
Asian Canadians have a different experience than than perhaps white Canadians. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think so. Now, definitely, because this um, these incidents have become so highly publicized. So mm-hmm. it does, I think, probably give a lot of Asian people pause um, to think about their own safety. I don't think that every Asian person who walks out the door is going to be targeted, but it might make them think a little bit more um, about what happens when they go out. But I, yes, I think even before this, we have navigated this society a little differently than, you know, white Canadians. Um, I know when I was, when I was starting out in this business, I was told that the things that would play in my favor were that I was female and that I was a visible minority. And I guess in some ways it did. I don't know. But it did, It you know, it made me think, well, I don't want to be hired just because I'm female and a visible minority. So it made me work probably harder to show those in power that I had a lot to offer and not just the color of my skin or the length of my hair or, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, I think we have, I think we have always had to navigate a little bit differently um, and continue to just, we just take the turns as they come. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> that's the journey of being an Asian Canadian, I guess. Are we allowed to make fun of white people? Like you get that <laughs> idea of punching up mm-hmm. applied to white men and women. And, and you know, there's been this big conversation around the Karen stereotype, quote unquote, which I think first was maybe generational. So maybe an ageist stereotype. But then you started to hear, you know, a lot of white women say this is kind of racist because you're categorizing white women of a certain age as, as this person. And, you know, at, at first I was like a little taken aback by that, but I did give it empathy and I, I did think about that and, and I thought, oh, I guess there's a point here. But then I also kind of do believe in, you know, punching up. <laughs> <laughs> and and so this is something that I do grapple with. What, yeah, do you are have we a allowed take on to? That? Well, I know that when Karen first became a thing, it hadn't occurred to me that it was a white woman thing. Mm-hmm. I sort of heard it initially as just a woman thing. Sure. And yeah. So, yeah. It could be misogynistic too. Yeah, sure. I didn't actually think and now, you know, as it continued to be used, I I I noticed, I guess, that it had been used more for white women than just women in general. So, um, yeah, I didn't love it from a female point of view. Um Are we allowed to? I yeah, I mean, have I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Will I with a microphone on? No. Nope. No, and I, right, like these days, I probably have made all sorts of comments in my life. Sure. But now I I think more about the things that I say. Yeah. And, um, and I think more about who it might hurt. So... Maybe I maybe my jokes aren't as funny anymore. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm not as interested. No, that's not the right thing. But uh, yeah, no. I I guess are we allowed to? I'd rather we didn't. I don't. I don't. I just don't know that making fun of anyone is is a great thing anymore. Yeah. Because we've seen the damage it can do to to us 
um, you know, my white friends, um, they would poke fun at themselves too. And I guess if if I have that kind of connection with them and and we're super close, um, my making a comment about them would probably have less to do with them being white, more just mm-hmm. that I know them really well. Um, in a in a bigger picture sense, I think it would just be nice if we would stop making fun of people, <laughs> with, you know, with uh, with uh, with malice, yeah, as the motivation, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, no, I, no, I, I, I think you're, all your points are fair. It, it's hard to argue on the side of like let's make fun of people, but but the Karen thing, I know. Like, I have a a colleague who did feel who didn't who, who felt hurt by it, and she is a white woman, um, and I understood from her point of view, why she... Totally. And that's, she felt- that's what I'm saying is like when when they say that, I'm like, you know what? I guess that's yeah on both sides, on the sexist side and the, the, the racial side. I almost feel like there's a way to punch up that is a commentary on privilege mm-hmm. versus blanketing someone with a racial stereotype. Yeah. And so... I guess we're one way to do it that's acceptable. Well, it's it's hard. It's nuanced, right? It's hard. So I think like it's one way to sort of point out that someone specifically lives a life of privilege, and maybe they have blinders on to larger cultural issues, larger societal issues, and that because of their privilege, they're acting in a way that's really silly. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to say, oh, well, you're just a white woman. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, maybe there isn't nuance in that, but but let's say that that is a nuanced position. I think, yeah, we have to graduate to that point of like, yeah, you're allowed to punch up. You're allowed to parody, caricaturize politicians in particular. Mm-hmm. That's also my bread and butter. <laughs> but it has to be in a way that isn't racist or sexist or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're allowed to punch up, but you can't have, I guess, blowback or collateral damage to other groups because you're making a commentary about right. one person. Right. So if you were to make a, you know, a comment um, about Justin Trudeau's privilege just because he's come up during our chat today, yeah. that it's not about all white people, but he just comes from a place or, you know, when he did the blackface costume thing, mm-hmm. um, he... He he is from, he's coming from a place of privilege, and yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that all white people are like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, I think that in if you do it if you do it that way, then then punching up has some more meaning, I guess, mm-hmm. rather than just a cheap kind of joke. Yeah. Um, what about what about within ethnic groups? Like, can I make a joke about Chinese people, yes. or can you make a joke about Muslim <laughs> yes. people? Can I do a Chinese accent? I, and and by the way, I can't. And I just <laughs> when I, I mean, it's not that I'm not allowed to. I mean, I literally cannot do it. I'm not good at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think accent jokes are, are bottom barrel to a certain degree, unless it's like something really funny where there was a misunderstanding because of an accent. But just busting out the accent, oh, that's that's a funny way of saying something. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of over that. And I think a lot of the culture is over that too, right? Yeah. 
I sometimes I wonder about these things because I do think that our humor is inv- is evolving in a certain way. Like, would Russell Peters' original stand-up oh, special, wow. yeah, you know, where he was busting out all these accents, yeah, how well does it hold up now? And it was funny. It I was mean, so I, funny. Back I then. was a big fan, but also what made it funny was he was very much in a multicultural society and talking about all these friends that he had and their mothers and like, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was a very personal thing that he was doing. Could you just come out and rattle off random accents and would that be funny anymore? I don't know. Depends. And, and when I, when, you know, if I'm with a group of other um, Chinese Canadians mm-hmm. and we might make a joke or something like that about our own people, is that okay? Well, I mean, for, uh, for me, I feel like it's kind of done affectionately too. Yeah. Like it's, it's what connects us and you know, it, yeah, it, it's like any social group. When you're in a social group and you kind of rib on each other, it's within your social group. You have yeah. like certain norms and understanding, and it's usually never out of line. And if it is, you ha- you know you talk about it with your your friends or whatever. But usually, it's like there's an understanding of how you can rib each other. Yeah. It's way different than when some outsider comes in and starts ribbing totally. on on you, yeah. and they're not part of your social group, and you're like, why? Why would you say that? Yeah. So I think we understand these things. Like instinctively. Instinctively. Mm -hmm. But then we try to make these like ultra rational arguments of like, well, you made that joke. So how come I can't make that joke? Right. Oh, why do black people get to say the N word and I don't get to say it? Like it's it's dumb. It's dumb logic in a lot of ways. And we understand why instinctively. Yeah. But we try to rationalize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why we can say stupid things. But yeah, like I can make a joke about my mother, but no one else is allowed to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all context. It, or even the idea of like, say if you're doing a historical piece that covers, that, that covers you know, the, the circus in a certain era where you had people wearing blackface. Mm-hmm. You would have actors wearing blackface in the context of that movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Makes sense. Yeah. That's different than Justin Trudeau wearing yes. blackface. Yes. <laughs> right? So, like, I just think, like, things have to be taken into context. And, again, we understand why some things are offensive and some things aren't. Yeah. But we almost try to excuse ourselves for maybe bad behavior. Yeah. I think that um, just a lot – we need – we as a society need to be more thoughtful mm-hmm. about these things and so many – so many other things. Yeah. I didn't mention this, but uh, you brought me two canisters of kombucha. Yes, because I, I didn't know which <laughs> you would like. So one is ginger and one's raspberry. And then ginger, I love. But oh, it's Maybe so good. it's really strong for people. So no, I, I'm about halfway through it already. Is it good? It's so good. Okay. <laughs> I just love that this is the trend now for the show. Like, it's I mean, there's a streak going on. Anytime someone comes in person, and we are socially mm-hmm. distanced, I want to yeah. be very clear about that. We are socially distanced, but they bring me treats, and this is this has to continue. So this is going to be the mandate now. I don't. I think I must have. <laughs> I don't know if I heard it when Tamara brought you kombucha or something like that, yes. or, or you mentioned it. And then so when Jill Crop, I happened to text Jill Crop just before she was heading to oh. do her her interview with you, and she said, oh, "I'm just on my way to to." do the Moamir podcast. And I said, oh my God, you have to bring him kombucha. He loves it. 
And she's like, well, I already got Vov or something like that. So You were drinking champagne at like 10 a.m. It was <laughs> and fantastic. And I thought about that, but I also, I didn't want to get day drunk because we're talking about serious things here. And sure. it's going to be recorded. The other thing I just wanted to, I know you're probably wrapping up, but I think there are different experiences too for uh, Canadians of color like me who were born and raised here who don't have an accent. Um or who have a Canadian accent, I, I guess I should say, versus immigrants. Like, oh, I think there's just, just like, there's this hierarchy, this racist hierarchy yeah, um, that pits us against each other and, um, uh, and just uh, ranks us. And, and it's, it's, uh, these are issues that, again, I didn't really think about a lot until the last, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, when a lot of Hong Kong people were coming to Vancouver mm-hmm. because of the handover, um, and there were a lot of real estate always seems to be a thing, uh, real estate and Asians. Um, there were discussions in my high school social studies class about um, the quote-unquote monster homes and the um, um, Hong Coover and, and that kind right. of thing. And my classmates would say, well, you know, it's not you, Sophie, because I was the only Chinese kid in class, I guess. Um, it's not you, Sophie. It's just, but these people, these people yeah. coming here. Well, th- these people were also my relatives <laughs> yeah, who were coming yeah. here. So, so um, I've, man, that, that's that been hard to see as well, this acceptance of people who look like me, talk like me but then if you have an accent well then you're suddenly a different level of canadianness somehow yeah which because i've i've heard people say uh, well is is he canadian canadian yeah <laughs> which what what is what that? is that like <laughs> i know what you're saying but really are you saying that yeah that Again, it goes back to nuance and context, understanding that we are all so different, and just understanding that we can talk about foreign buyers, mm-hmm. right? Or yeah. people that live somewhere else and buy property here as investments or whatever. And we can have that policy discussion without condemning a whole group of people or mm-hmm. without looking at an Asian person who has an accent who buys a home because mm-hmm. they plan to live here. Yeah. You know, there there are these conversations around taxes and rules and real estate, which I think are totally legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's just don't blanket people yes. <laughs> without even knowing their circumstance or who they're about by saying, oh, they're just those people. Truth be told, that's probably when I started to, <laughs> to uh, think again about issues of race is when, um, you know, in 2015 or whenever we started to see the real big spike uh, when we would talk about these stories. And I remember feeling slightly uncomfortable mm. and I could, I don't think I really understood why, but I think it was PTSD from those social sure. studies classes. Sure. <laughs> um, and again, and like you said, not, not that we shouldn't be doing these stories. They are valid stories and, um, and they have to be covered, but there's just because, Someone is buying um, up real estate uh, in Vancouver, and they happen not to be from here. You can't paint everyone who looks like that with that same brush. Yeah, exactly. 
I hope that's the lesson that's taken out of our. Yeah, I don't know. Chat. I don't know, and I know you were you were sort of on the on the way to no, wrapping no, up here. It's all good, but it just crossed my mind. I, I mean, we've gone through a lot. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows where to find you. Obviously, Global BC News mm-hmm. Hour, six o'clock news. But what do you want people to take away from this chat? And I know we just kind of touched on it, but mm-hmm. what's your call to action? Well, I I think someone asked me this recently when I posted something about anti-Asian racism and they asked me, what can I do? (laughs) I was like, oh my God, I don't know what you can do. (laughs) That's a big question. And my answer is probably going to sound so simple and not like, uh, not like enough. There's beauty in simplicity. I think listening and talking and being thoughtful. So when you're, when your friend or your colleague wants to have conversations with you about um, something you maybe have said, um, or if you want to talk about it with someone else, like, I think you just really need to, to listen to mm-hmm. what the other person is saying with an open mind. And don't get defensive. Try not to get defensive. Or if you are feeling defensive, think about why you're feeling defensive. Um, there just needs to be a lot more open conversation and thoughtfulness into yeah. things we do and say to each other. It's pr- it's pretty simple. <laughs> I, I wish I had a bigger, deeper answer. No, I love it. I absolutely love that. And I would, if you would allow me, I would just add, if you're in a conversation about these issues... Not just this idea of being thoughtful and listening, Mm -hmm. but one thing that I find helpful is stop and think, am I trying to win an argument Mm -hmm. or am I actually having a conversation? Yeah. Because sometimes, and we all, we're human, you know, we're trying to win an argument. We're so like grounded in our ego or whatever that we're just like trying to explain why Justin Trudeau wearing blackface wasn't racist or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. As opposed to like just having a conversation where we're trying to understand each other. Yeah. And and I think that's what you're saying. And I just wanted to add yeah. that because that's a trick that I use myself. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it because I, I feel that way too sometimes mm-hmm. that sometimes I want to dig in my heels and this is why I'm right. Yeah. Even though I know deep down, well, <laughs> well you make some not. good points. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, this was a dream. I'm still in awe. I would <laughs> I would ask you again to pinch me, but again, we're socially distanced, so you can't do that. Maybe after the summer. <laughs> I'll come back and pinch. I'll just show no, up I'm, one day. No, I'm serious. This is surreal for me. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for asking me. It's been fun. Yeah. People, this was one for the books. I can't tell you how privileged I am to have guests that you all know of, that you see regularly on your television screens, and to have them come here wear their heart on their sleeve and talk about feelings and experiences and talk about the culture, real messy stuff. This is my jam and good Lord did today's guest deliver. She's a superstar. She's a broadcasting icon in this city. You can find her on Global BC. She is Sophie Louis. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. folks, I'm Mo Amir, this is CKNW, and this is your Van Color Moment. Hey Vancouver, are you tired of Mayor Kennedy Stewart? 
Well, a new alternative from Vancouver's oldest political party has emerged for your vote in 18 months to become Vancouver's next mayor. He's Park Board Commissioner John Cooper, and he's a man. He will be the mayoral candidate for the nonpartisan association, the NPA. You know, the party that elected five city councillors in the last civic election, all of whom are women. Putting the coup in Cooper, John Cooper didn't have to win an NPA mayoral nomination race against those women because John Cooper is the man. All the man needs is the anointment from the NPA's board of directors. Even though John told the board twice that they don't reflect the values of the NPA, then John accepted the mayoral nomination from that same board that he said doesn't reflect the NPA's values. Anyway, John made news lately campaigning against the temporary bike lane in Stanley Park because fighting bike lanes gets you elected mayor in this city. Oh, and John helped save Bloedel Conservatory. 11 years ago. This was the only political accomplishment noted in the NPA press release, which is weird because John was elected to park board three times and he's still riding high on something he did before Siri was ever in the iPhone. So vote for John Cooper for the mayor of Vancouver next year because he's the man. And that's something that Colleen Hardwick, Sarah Kirby Young, and Lisa Dominato are not. This has been your Van Color Moment with Mo Amir on 980 CKNW.